so you were talking about the depression in New York City and uh, your dad getting squeezed by J.C. Penney's. And I think that's where we left off. At the time, during the immediate period of the crash, I was in school, I believe. I was in law school at the time, or had just entered law school. But in any event, as the Depression continued, I, conti I uh, completed my college education, law school education, and became a practicing lawyer. In college, my uh, major was political science. Mm. So I was particularly interested in following the developments as they were occurring. And uh, then, as also as a lawyer, I was interested in what the legal effects of the uh, improvisations of the administration would be. And uh, it was very interesting to follow the succession of the Supreme Court decisions ruling on the various uh, Roosevelt agencies that had been created to deal with the, with the emergencies. And it was also indicative of the break in the thinking from that which occurred before mm -hmm. and that which occurred afterwards. So I consider that that would be one of the watersheds of, uh, of change mm. that one could live through, and I feel fortunate in having lived through it yeah. and can remember it. Yeah, so if you obviously, people of your generation obviously, it seems like Rose FDR was a, was a person that you would see his picture in the house of uh, someone, for instance, a Jewish New Yorker, and you would see his picture in the house of someone who lived in Appalachia. Well, it would be more than that, because uh, each time there is such a change, there always are people who resist that change, who uh, benefit from the condition before mm. and want to preserve that condition for themselves. And there was plenty of that in New York. Uh, New York was considered a rather liberal, forward-looking state. Uh, Al Smith had been the governor. Roosevelt had been the governor so that there was a feeling of uh, uh, innovation, of uh, willingness to take chances mm -hmm. and wishing to break from the past. I remember when Al Smith was nominated to run for president on the, on the uh, Democratic ticket uh, that was regarded as a, uh, a heresy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Catholics weren't supposed to be nominated mm -hmm. to run for president, particularly a Catholic from the east side of New York. And uh, the convention was particularly interesting at the time. This is what year in the 20s? That was in the, uh, he ran for president, I believe, in 1928. Mm. And I believe he was defeated by Hoover. Mm. if I'm correct. That sounds about right. And uh, there was the contrast between Hoover on the one hand representing the old guard 
and Smith and Roosevelt representing the new generation of government so that both from the point of view of personal experience and intellectual experience for me, it was a time of great change and great mm. interest. Mm. And when do you think the next thing that you can remember in terms of maybe a watershed New York moment or something? I mean, I remember you telling me when you, you were a little kid, you remembered, uh, you felt like one day it was all horses and the next day it was all cars. Well, it was uh, a more gradual change. I remember that uh, I saw horse-drawn fire engines. Uh-huh. And also, we lived in Brooklyn at the time, and uh, the street, light, street lights were not electric. They burned gas. <laughs> and and uh, each light had to be lit separately. Mm. And there would be a lamplighter who would go from lamppost to lamppost and turn on the light when it got dark. So that... Uh, uh, that too represented a change from the uh, necessity to do things individually by hand mm, mm. into a time when things were done automatically mm -hmm. through a, a type of machinery or a type of, of uh, electrical uh, setups. Technology. Technology would, would intervene in the place of where people used to do the things actually by hand. So, uh, also there was the change in transportation at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, airplanes had just become more or less commonplace with World War I when air combat had become uh, more common and the need for airplanes made it necessary to uh, manufacture them in numbers but uh, originally to see an airplane flying in the sky was enough to stop traffic. Uh -huh. People would look up to see it. <laughs> Soon it became an accustomed sight. And uh, uh, also the number of automobiles increased remarkably. I remember one game we used to have uh, sitting on the front porch watching the cars go by and being able to identify and identify by the name of the manufacturer. Uh, there weren't that many at the time, mm -hmm. and uh, the difference in the contours of the automobiles was more marked. They didn't all look the same right. as they do today. In school, we had, during the First World War, there was also a, a uh, greater feeling of personal participation than there were in subsequent wars as I grew older. Mm. I remember that uh, we used to have uh, school pageants or, or shows to indicate patriotism. There were drives to collect peach pits, for instance. In order, to, peach pits were burned to form charcoal. Oh, and okay. charcoal was used in the early the gas, gas masks. masks right. So that. Uh, I used to collect peach bits and oh. bring them to school <laughs> so that I felt that in some way I was participating. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that also uh, 
on a personal level changed a bit because members of our family were still in Europe. Uh, some came to the United States as permanent residents and some came as visitors during the war mm -hmm. to, uh, they had lived in Belgium and to avoid living in the uh, territories occupied by the Nazis, they would come to the United States and we would have the benefit of, of, of socializing with them mm -hmm. so as to be exposed to the European culture. All of these things, I suppose, combined to have an influence as I grew up mm. on uh, how I was going, going to conduct my life and, and uh, make my way. So when I look back, I'm very happy that I had all of these experiences, despite the fact that at the time they seemed to me to be uh, something that should have been avoided. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, I remember you telling me about going to see baseball games when you were a kid, and your older cousins would take you to... Yeah. You mostly went to see the Giants, because that's where you grew up, right? I lived in Washington Heights, and I was probably about four or five blocks away from the polo grounds. <laughs> so that uh, when I had nothing, as I was younger, uh, I would be taken to ball games. Sometimes I would sit in the stands, sometimes in the bleachers. The bleachers, I think, at that time cost 25 cents. Mm. So it was no big deal to uh, go watch a ball game. Uh, and I saw Babe Ruth. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Rogers Hornsby and one of the other big names of Matthewson? the time. Matthewson? Christy Matthewson? You see no, Christy no. Matthewson. He was a little bit before me. Really? <laughs> uh, what about Tris Speaker? That, that... I saw Tris Speaker play. Wow! I saw Ty Cobb play. <laughs> Onus Wagner? No, he no. was gone by that oh. time. No. Did you see Ty Cobb do anything crazy, violent? Well, no. He, he Well, he when he ran the bases, it was every man for himself get out of his way mm -hmm. because if you stayed in this path, you risk being hurt. Uh, and uh, one thing that they all had in common, they all chewed tobacco. Mm -hmm. You could always see the uh, cut in their mouths. <laughs> and uh, I don't think that, that uh, you had the feeling that uh, Baseball was controlled by large money interests, as it is today. Mm -hmm. uh, you had the feeling that this was a team which uh, was being reflective of the community. And uh, there was, at least among the kids, a real personal interest. Uh, and things were a little different then, too, because during the World Series, you didn't have television, you didn't have radio. Wow, no radio. You either. did keep track of the scores because storekeepers would get the scores by telephone and post them on uh, banners outside the store so that as you walked down the street, you could keep track of the score of the World Series games as they were going on. Oh, that's so cool. And, uh, of course, there was a, 
a proliferation of newspapers. You get probably 10 different accounts of a ball game by buying 10 different newspapers, uh -huh. which was no big deal either because the New York Times was two cents. Mm. And uh, so were its competitors. The morning papers were all two cents. Uh, Is that where my two cents comes from? And uh, the uh, evening papers were three cents. I remember that when radio first came in, it was not the elaborate uh, set that uh, was more common at a later time. It was either the crystal set or the one-tube set. And so I built myself a one-tube set. Really? And it worked. Wow. <laughs> and I could get KDKA in Pittsburgh. <laughs> <laughs> Although I had to use earphones because they were they didn't operate on loudspeakers at the time. And uh, as I said, automobiles changed. They changed from uh, gear shift, which was uh, every car was driven by a gear mm -hmm. shift mm -hmm. originally. I remember that. After I learned to drive, the switch to automatic transmission came into effect. That's a, and uh, when is that? The forties or the fifties? I think in the forties, mm -hmm. but I can't be sure about that. I remember that I learned to drive up at the farm, uh -huh. and I learned to drive by maneuvering a car on a lawn that was probably. 80 feet wide by 150 feet long. Uh -huh. And I had to drive that car in that area, which meant learning how to turn, learning how to shift from first to second. And uh, I was about 15 years old at the time that I learned. So, <laughs> wow, so you're talking 1918? No, it's 1926. Oh, okay. Wow. Um, now, what about when you started, you went away to Boston for? Well, I went to law school right. in Cambridge in Massachusetts. I went to Harvard Law School. Uh, and didn't they have, like, not laws at that time, but wasn't there some type of a quota that they had if you were not? Well, Wasp, you uh, had it was it was it was generally supposed that in uh, colleges and law schools and probably with considerable basis that there were quotas for Jews mm. and that a certain number of Jews were allowed to enter into these institutions. Mm. I never was really engaged with schoolwork in uh, elementary school or high school, I sort of floated through. But in college, I did become interested and engaged. And then at that point, education meant something, and I think I really got the benefit on the basis of my record in college. I was able to enter Harvard Law School. And that also was an eye-opener because everybody there was on at least on my intellectual level, mm -hmm. and many superior. Uh, 
So that was a very good experience. That plus living away from home mm -hmm. for three years. And in a place like Cambridge, Boston, it was a very nice area to be in because it had a lot of, a lot of uh, cultural things mm -hmm. that were available. And some not so high cultural. <laughs> like what, Red Sox games? Burlesque. Oh, <laughs> which is making a huge comeback now, by the way. Oh, it may be. Yeah, another person in one of these interviews talked about but that, how that's that was he the hay, the heyday of uh, of uh, burlesque in the sense of Minsky burlesque. <laughs> which is what? Explain it to me. Well, it uh, it it uh, consisted really of, of two elements. One was the uh, comedian uh -huh. whose home humor was at a very low level. Uh -huh. <laughs> so I would like it, probably. And the other was uh, women, uh, usually long and young and pretty, in various stages of undress. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, uh, that was one of the uh, possibilities for uh, cultural education. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> or some form of education. When you, you told me when you, you used to go down in the, in the um, 20s and the 30s with a date, you would go down to Cotton Club and places yes, like hard. that. Yes. What do you remember about that? Because you have to understand, for myself and my friend Adam, my partner who's, who's involved in this with me, we are such fanatics of, of that music and that time, Duke Ellington, uh, Fletcher Henderson, all, you know, Cap Chick Calloway. Webb, all of that, Cap Calloway yeah. and Benny Goodman, all of that stuff. Well, that would be a little later, Benny Goodman, but, you know, did you see any of those guys yes, play? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, what was that like at that well, time? Well, at that time, uh, we would, uh, you did various things on a day. First of all, we were not flush with money, so uh, we weren't able to go to the really plush places. But there were places in Harlem where you could go, and we did occasionally with a reasonable amount of money. And uh, uh, normally you would sit down and nominally order food, which was of a very indifferent quality. Mm -hmm. And there would be a dance floor where you would dance, and then there would be a floor show. And uh, during the dancing periods, the orchestra would play, and I remember Cab Calloway, and uh, some of the other names I'm sure we danced to. That was one way of going out on the date. Another way would be to go to one of the New York hotels where the name orchestras with a drawer. And there you would go normally after dinner. Mm -hmm. I recall once I did go for dinner at the St. Regis, I think it was. Uh -huh. And it was after I got out of law school. And the dinner went very nicely. And it came time to pay the check. <laughs> I discovered I didn't have my wallet. Oh! So, confronted with the problem, I solved it because 
one of my friends was there also, not with us, but at a separate table. So I went over and casually borrowed the money for dinner from me. Yeah. Wow, so you didn't have to wash the I dishes I didn't have that to wash night. dishes that night or be embarrassed by my date. Right, right. Uh, and it, uh, you can make a choice with one of the big one of the big named orchestra. I think Vincent Lopez was playing at the Biltmore. I'm sure that Adam Dorn will know who that is, but I don't. I it don't was know. big at the time. At the time. And uh, Paul Whiteman. I oh, think, sure, yeah. Was at the Hotel yeah. Pennsylvania. So you may you may have seen Big Spider back play. Probably. Wow. <laughs> And those were big orchestras. They, sure. they were not your kid stuff. Right, right. And uh, we didn't regard that as being anything out of the ordinary, that at some times these would be household names. Mm, mm. But you went there and listened to the music. Wow. I remember when Gershwin's music was uh, introduced and became very popular. And uh, also, we could go to Broadway plays for 55 cents. And that deal was by going to a place called Gray's Drugstore, which was on 40-something Street in Broadway. I subsequently learned that uh, Gray's Drugstore was owned by my roommate's aunt when I was in law school. <clears throat> But you could go there the day of the show, buy tickets, and sit in the balcony for 55 cents. That's great. And see any show, because they never sold out, and their unsold tickets were sold through Grays. Do you remember any of the shows that you saw? Probably in my waking moments at some point. Yeah, this is in the 30s. I, I can't. I mean. But I remember... We used to go to a Eugene O'Neill's plays. Mm. Uh, there were also uh, regional theaters in New York. And when we were living in the 90s, the 90th Street, mm -hmm. not 90, not the year 90, <laughs> uh, there was a theater in that area that would get touring companies. And we used to see some of the better plays mm, mm. there. The touring companies were quite good, too. Uh, there was no such thing as the present off-Broadway mm -hmm. arrangement now. Because it either was on Broadway or it didn't get produced. Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, I remember one of the one of the uh, musicals at the time was something called Honeymoon Lane. I'm sure, again, I'm sure Adam knows that. <laughs> I'm quite sure that he would. Uh, the Ziegfeld Follies were uh, very popular then, but they were expensive. Those were big productions. And they were big, elaborate productions, yeah. Which didn't make any sense, except for the the uh, visual, the right? Visual, yeah. the, the, that's the with all of the mirrors and all. Was well, that the? They, 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 
really had was a succession of tableaus with lots of chorus girls mm -hmm. in fancy clothes. Right. And music, uh, you know, uh, Irving Berlin was turning out a, a hit a year. Wow. <clears throat> Harold Arlen, Cole Porter. Mm. Uh, so I remember that Ethel Merman was very popular at the time. <laughs> you can still hear her. She had a loud voice. Yeah. <laughs> but she was very good. Yeah. So what about, I remember you talking about um, when you, you would go to the baseball games when you were older, not when you were a kid, but when you were that, it, it, the, the players were just guys that you would see on the street and you would develop a, say, hey, kind of, you, you would develop acquaintanceships with, with some of these people. I don't think I could develop acquaintanceships with them, but uh, I used to go to, when I was probably in college, I used to go to the ball games at the polo grounds. Uh, and uh, during the week, there was no great problem. You went to the box office and bought a ticket, and you sat wherever you wanted. So there's no night games. These are only no, day games. No, these were all yeah. day games. They were no night games. And uh, you could sit right down close to the field, and uh, in that way, really see who these players were. Mm. And uh, I remember at that time the New York Giants in the 20s and 30s, the 1920s and 1930s, had a lot of very spectacular ball players. Who did they have back, back then? Well, I remember the first baseman was Bill Terry. And before that, it was a guy by the name of High Pockets Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> it's the nickname we have to bring that back for tall people. <laughs> and uh, the pitches were like Carl Hubble. Oh, wow. And uh, I remember there was a Fitzsimmons who pitched. Dazzy Vance was patch, pitching for Brooklyn. The attitude between players on different teams was very different then. Uh, you weren't supposed to fraternize oh, really? with the enemy. <laughs> really? Uh, the, it created the impression of uh, real do or die sports. Mm -hmm. Rivalries. And if you went to a football game, you were just as likely to be sitting out in the open in the rain <laughs> or snow <laughs> right. as you are in the sunshine. You saw, what football teams did you see at that time? Well, I saw the beginning of the New York Giants. Mm. Where was that? At the Polo at Grounds. The polo they played at the Polo Grounds, and they used to give free tickets in order to get people to come. And somehow I managed to get free tickets. Because football was nothing compared to baseball at that time, right? No, football was... Uh, football was college football, mm -hmm. and this was just the beginning of professional football, and it really was really was a nothing sport. But I remember seeing Tom Thorpe. Mm -hmm. Tom 
Thorpe. You mean Jim Thorpe? Jim Thorpe. Really? Jim Thorpe? Oh, my word. At that point, he was reduced mostly to kicking, and he could really kick. And uh, Red Grange. Wow. Who else? Newt Rockney. <laughs> he, was a, he was a football coach. He was a right? coach. Yeah. And he coached Notre Dame, and Notre Dame normally didn't come to New York, mm. although Fordham was a Catholic school that they may have played Notre Dame, mm. and they had a very good football team. Uh, names begin to escape me. Mm. Mm. But uh, the big games were the college games, and uh, football was a note at me probably had achieved the level of what lacrosse is today. Right, right, yeah. Something my son just makes fun of all, your great-grandson makes fun of all the time. Yeah. <laughs> so let's fast forward a little bit. And, um, you know, you, you ended up enlisting. I didn't enlist, I was drafted. You were drafted! Because Jane was already born. Oh, right, my mom, that's yeah, my mom, yeah. wow. Yeah, Jane was a few months old. I uh, was drafted in 1943, went to uh, basic training in North Carolina, and uh, got to know some people locally, which made it a lot easier. As a matter of fact, they became good friends. Mm. And uh, at one point, Jane brought um, Ruth brought Jane down to Wilmington, North Carolina, mm -hmm. and stayed in the cottage of one of our friends. So that, oh, that's uh, nice. that was nice. Yeah. The unit I was in was a, uh, a heavy gun anti-aircraft battalion. And as the war wore on, the need for those outfits was uh, diminished. Mm -hmm. So the unit was broken up and uh, it became something called a prisoner of war escort battalion. We, uh, most of the men were transferred out of the battalion to become individual infantry replacements. And uh, a lot of new recruits came in. And I remember that I was uh, surprised one day to find that I was one of those who was supposed to go to Europe as an infantry replacement. Oh, to Europe. And I was asked, I asked why. So I was told that I had made application for officer training as a, in the Judge Advocates General's division. I told them that that application had long since been lost somewhere in the archives and there wasn't a chance so they kept me in the battalion rather than shipping me off to Europe as an infantryman. I was then, what, 30, 34, 35 years old, and uh, not the most athletic <laughs> of that, at that time. So I don't know how much good I would have done. In, uh, but uh, instead they shipped us off to the Pacific and we spent time in Leyte. That's the Philippines? In the Philippines. And that, and part of the time, uh, well, when I got there, I was made a uh, 
a criminal investigator because I was a lawyer. Uh, and as such, we were allowed to live off the base. And I lived in a native home in Tacloban, which is the city that has recently been leveled by the typhoon. Right, you lived in Tacloban, wow. Yeah. I lived in a native house, which was a thatched cottage. No windows, it was open on four sides. The livestock were kept underneath the, where the cottage was raised. There was no sanitation in the city at all. And uh, it was the main city on the island. I remember that I used to have to go on uh, searches throughout the island and I would go into the back country and there would be these native huts that people were living in, obviously on the edge of poverty, with having very little of furniture or whatever. But each one had a Seeger sewing machine. Really? Uh, well, they produced handwork mm. that was then sold on the international market. Even back then? Wow. Yeah. Well, particularly back then, because that was one of the the sources. Uh, Asia was not a source for manufactured materials mm -hmm. at the time, but uh, the Philippines were regarded as part of the Orient. Mm -hmm. And I also remember that the uh, Pacific Fleet used to come and anchor off Leyte. I remember the night the first atomic bomb was dropped. Wow. And I remember the night that peace was declared with Japan and the fleet was in the harbor and they let loose with a fireworks display. Oh, I bet they did. That was more impressive than Macy's. Yeah, <laughs> I can only imagine. So when, when you got back, you settled into a family life, you had a second kid, my Aunt Nancy. And, um, you know, what was it like, you get back and this whole epic of the 1950s happened and then the 1960s happened, but what I'm curious about is for someone like yourself, more of a new dealer coming out of that world, what was the McCarthy thing like? Well, that was really pretty terrible because... Uh, not only was he an evil person, but there was a substantial percentage of the population who supported him, mm. who felt that he was doing good work. And these were people who you would meet in your personal life, mm. uh, either in your social interchange or, or uh, in uh, my law practice, where if I would uh, have lawyers coming from out of town involved in matters that I was involved with and expressing support for McCarthy. Woo. And uh, I, it was just plain evil because he was ruining lives. Lots of them, lots of them. Uh, I profited indirectly from this at a subsequent time because uh, one of my partners 
a brother of one of my partners had been a uh, director in Hollywood and he was part of the uh, fringe that was uh, driven out. Mm -hmm. He went to London and was doing uh, movie work in London. And uh, What they, was his name? His last name was Vorhaus. Uh, I forget what his first name was. But he was blacklisted and he had to He was blacklisted. And a number of these people formed an independent movie company. And uh, they had, uh, they signed up uh, some important names. Among them Paul Newman, mm. uh, Paul Henried, who was in uh, Casablanca. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I did, what they did was they would produce movies either in Britain or in Italy and then send them here and have them shown here. And I did their legal work. So uh, I remember that one of the pictures, Paul Henry was the star. And at that point, the American Union, the movie union, decided that this was not a good thing. And they decided to show opposition. So we had trouble getting the movie in. And that's when I got to meet Paul Henry, who became a client of mine. Oh, wow. Uh, and uh, the movie never did get uh, a general release but it uh, played backwaters and also it played uh, television at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, so that I, my connection with it was that I used to receive the producer's share and then I would distribute it to the various interests in the movie company. Gotcha, gotcha. So I got to know, the, know these people. Uh, oh, that's cool. So this is the 50s. This is in the 50s already. But that was the indirect result mm -hmm. of McCarthyism. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I remember also one of the writers for the group was a well-known Hollywood writer, but he changed his name for use on this, mm -hmm. this company. So I got some some uh, exposure to the movie business that way. Oh, that's fascinating. Wow. <laughs> but there definitely is a, a, a kind of a, a narrative or a thread that runs from people like McCarthy, that demagoguing kind of personality that still is today, you have an entire entire news stations dedicated to that way. It, not as heavy as McCarthy, but the same idea where they want to cast aspersions on people and paint them with a brush and they do the thing of pretending like they have no power whatsoever and they're outnumbered by these horrible people that could be commies or they could be Jews or they could be black or they could be gay or whatever they could be. Well, McCarthy's thing was that uh, the, uh, the Bolsheviks had uh, infiltrated <laughs> the, the government. American government. Yeah. And uh, so he was looking for Russian spies 
in the United States government. And it's a pyramid scheme. Like any pyramid scheme, it works until it doesn't, and there's nothing behind it. Well, he didn't turn up many suspects. That's the whole thing. Same as a pyramid scheme. It doesn't have much money involved in it. When everyone wants their money, that's the end of it. Look at Madoff, right? Well, it's not the pyramid scheme. It's not that there isn't much money in it. It's that they use fresh money to pay the obligations of the old money. Right, right. You remember the original Ponzi scheme. Ponzi, yes. Yeah, yeah sure. Yep. And I remember when you had your 100th birthday, you got up and you gave a, an off-the-cuff uh, kind of speech. Uh, and what I thought, what really struck me was you were talking about how lucky you felt that your parents had the presence of mind to leave Eastern Europe and, and, moved, and move here. Can you talk about your parents' um, experiences over there? And where, Your mom was from Minsk originally? Or? No, my father was your from Minsk. Your father was from Minsk. My mother was from a small town in Poland called... Zabludova? Zabludova. <laughs> and... Uh, I hear they have really nice mud in Zabludova. Uh, I have never been there, but I think that um, Arnie Amster mm -hmm. did go there, and really, I guess, must have been just a hamlet. But in any event, my mother didn't speak of it very much, uh, and uh, all I know is that, contrary to what was the habit of most of the people there, she was given an education as a girl, mm. and uh, so that she was uh, she was always uh, quite well educated. When she came here, she used to go to courses to try to advance her, her education. Uh, when she first came here, she went to work for her brothers, who were in the uh, diamond business. Mm -hmm and uh, was a bookkeeper <coughs> until she was married in 1909. And uh, she always told the story about how that day there was a very great snowstorm and my aunt, Rachel, got lost on the way and I don't know if she ever got there for the ceremony. Uh -huh. My father came from Minsk and he came, I think, as when he was quite young. And uh, I think they were quite impoverished at the time. Mm. And he started out by uh, peddling whatever the things were that he was selling from city to city. And ultimately he got, brought over his, his uh, siblings and also his father and mother. And I remember him telling that uh, they were employed in a sweatshop. On the Lower East Side somewhere? On the East Side someplace. And my father was operating a machine. His father couldn't operate a machine, so he was put to work ironing the clothes that were being manufactured. But he was a Talmud scholar. Your and grandfather? My grandfather. Mm -hmm and sometimes his attention would wander. And it wandered 
until the iron burnt the clothes. <laughs> so he was fired. He's fired. <laughs> Nothing like having your dad fired from the job. That was my grandfather. Well, that's what I mean, but your father was there and his dad was fired from the job. Wow. Yep. Well, I probably would have the same way, so <laughs> I don't feel too bad. Well, that's excellent. You have anything else you want to add? No. Life goes on. Yeah. <laughs> True that. Thanks, Grandpa.